This is Warning Radio with Dr. Jonathan Hansen, founder and president of World Ministries International, a non-denominational end times ministry dedicated to fulfilling a divine commission to trumpet forth warnings from God concerning the imminent second coming of Christ and the impending judgment of God upon the ungodly. God has sent Dr. Hansen to many nations of the world with a solemn warning to the political and religious leaders and citizenry to repent of their sinfulness and wickedness or face the catastrophic judgments that will soon be unleashed upon the unbelieving world. Listen now to the warnings of our compassionate and merciful Creator conveyed through His faithful prophetic spokesman, the host of Warning Radio, Dr. Jonathan Hansen. This is Dr. Jonathan Hansen. Welcome to the Warning Radio program. Today you're going to hear a message by my friend, Reverend Norm Willis who spoke to the staff of World Ministries International and their families. Let's begin. I'd like to talk to you tonight about the prodigal father. For think I'm being disrespectful of God, I'm not referring to God as being sinful as we normally refer to the prodigal. I'd like to expand a little bit on what the word prodigal really means. What I'd really like to talk about is having an Abba encounter with God. In 2004, I was diagnosed with tongue cancer. It's not a very good thing for a preacher to get, but I was diagnosed with tongue cancer, and the doctor said, you have tongue cancer, and he said, this could be career-ending. He said, but don't worry, you could always administrate. It's not a very good thing to tell a preacher he can administrate, you know. I went into surgery, and I remember waking up in the operating room, I woke up in the operating room, and of course, any of you ever been in an operating room, it's you know bright, stainless steel, and very sterile. The first thing I remember waking up was the presence of God. The second thing I remember was the pain. The pain was quickly there, but my point is, is in the midst of all that just transpired, I mean, having a piece of your tongue cut off and the surgery and all the rest of it, to in that moment have this encounter with God in the operating room. I mean, of all places, you know, we expect it. It's going to be in the church. It's going to be on a mountaintop. It's going to be in some intimate place where the lights are low and the music plays softly. But to have this encounter with the presence of God in the sterility of a operating room, in the midst of a piece of your tongue being cut off, all the doctors and all the rest of it, and it was that immediate sense of, God, you're here. And that contrasted with Jacob when Jacob said, surely God was in this place, and I didn't know it. And at that moment, I said, God, I never want to miss an opportunity to experience your presence again. Now, I understand God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But I'm talking about that manifest presence. I'm talking about that encounter presence. I'm talking about that presence when you encounter God and its feelings. I know we're not supposed to want that. You know, we're supposed to be by faith, and it's not supposed to be about feelings. And I was in a meeting similar to this Tuesday night, and a guy was crying out, saying, man, it's been years since I've felt God. And all the good-meaning Christians, you know, say, oh, well, it's not about feelings, and it's about faith, and, you know, you shouldn't want feelings. And I'm thinking to myself, why wouldn't we want to feel them? I mean, he gave us emotions. 
You know, I mean, I think our emotions, our, our feelings, I mean, I felt that, you know. And if he gave us feelings, well, what a better thing to use feelings for than to feel God. Now, I understand it shouldn't be foremost and we shouldn't build our whole life around the feelings. But to have that God encounter when you experience him when you feel him and you walk away with that sense of, I have just been loved on by God in the midst of the stuff, in the midst of the turmoil. I think we all know the story of the prodigal son. Get your Bibles. It's Luke chapter 15. I want to just bring out perhaps a different focus on that than perhaps what you've thought about before. There was a man who had two sons, verse 11, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. That's the best place we can be before God a place of acknowledging our need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It's interesting that he was satisfied in being treated a slave when father still wanted to treat him as a son. And it's that whole base nature, that orphan nature that we have. We're so easily satisfied with reducing to the common denominator which God wants to elevate and give us the greatest. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. So I want to draw our attention not so much to the prodigal son, but to the prodigal father. Prodigal has come to mean something sinful, but sinful was not the focus of its original meaning. The word prodigal is defined as extravagant. It's defined as lavish, abundant, and excessive. So using it in the negative sense, as we generally do with the son, we're saying that the son was extravagant in his sinfulness, He was lavish in that he squandered away his inheritance, and and that was certainly true. But when we understand it in the positive sense in relationship to the father, it takes on an entirely different meaning. Just as the prodigal son was excessive in sin, so we see a prodigal father who's excessive in his love, a prodigal father who's extravagant in his acceptance. A prodigal father who is unconditional in his forgiveness. 
So while religion has a tendency to turn the focus to the negative, to the sinfulness of the son, I think the real story is the extravagance of the father. In seeing this story as the story of the prodigal father, we're reminded that we have a heavenly father who's lavish in his love toward us. I mean, not just a little doling out but someone who's lavish in his love, someone who is so mindful of the condition of his sons and daughters that even in the midst of a surgery in a surgery room, he would take the moment to manifest his presence and somehow pierce through all the drugs. I mean, we're talking morphine. That's not a mild drug, but somehow pierce through all his drugs to make sure that at that moment in time, I knew he was there with me. I can't even begin to express just what that did to my sense of belonging, my sense of acceptance. You know, reading that he's made us acceptable in the beloved, but in the moment feeling that acceptance. It went from a theological tenet to a very personal and practical experience which made it incredible. He's a prodigal father who not only welcomes us back when we sin, but a father who celebrates our return. I don't know what your definition of father is. I think a lot of times we have a tendency to project our definition of our heavenly father on the basis of our earthly father's experience. My mom and dad were divorced when I was three. My dad left without saying goodbye. I ran out to say goodbye to him, fell, and he ran over me with the car as he was leaving. But I got saved, and, you know, in the box of father, there was nothing there. There was just no experience. I was three. I don't remember anything prior, you know, no no fishing trips and no taking me to the camp or, or anything like that. It was just an empty box, which on one level is good news because I didn't have anything negative. On the other hand, there wasn't anything positive there. But God had plenty of opportunity in these last 42 years to rewrite that definition and understand just how amazing and how extravagant, how non-religious, how unpretentious, how other than... He is when he defines himself rather than when we or other people define him. So the father that I've come to know is the father that defines himself rather than the father that experience defines. And that's the father that I want us to understand tonight and experience if you haven't experienced that definition of father. It was Renan Manning who said, God loves us as we are, not as we should be, because we'll never be as we should be. So again, to be in that place where we're experiencing love the way Father intended love to be experienced rather than the way we think love should be experienced. The unconditional love of God is what motivates us to change. In other words, love is the greatest motivator, even greater than fear. I think religion has a tendency to use fear as the motivation, you know, the fear of hell or the fear of judgment. But love is the ultimate motivation. Religion has given us a justice of retribution. And what I mean by that is the trap when we don't understand the fatherhood of God, the way the fatherhood of God is meant to be understood. We get into this performance mindset where we're trying to earn the love of God rather than receive the love of God. So the pattern goes like this. We sin, we come under conviction. And after coming under conviction, we receive punishment. And then we come into repentance, and then we have to do some type of penance. 
I grew up Catholic, so growing up Catholic, I had to go through the whole process, and then I had to you know, say three Hail Marys and a couple Our Fathers and an act of contrition, and, and if I did that, then I would be forgiven. But the Bible gives us a justice of restoration. And in a justice of restoration, we sin, we come under conviction. And then after conviction, we encounter this thing called the kindness of God. Not punishment, but the kindness of God. The Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So when I'm facing conviction, knowing that I deserve punishment, but Jesus took that punishment, and as a result of him taking that punishment, I get kindness. What does that do? It transforms me. I mean, I'm in such awe of the process, I'm transformed, and as a result of being transformed, I repent. Now, I would suggest most of us would reverse that. No, you repent, then you get transformed. And that's why most of us don't get to repentance. Because we're trying to will ourselves into it. We're trying to somehow function in it. When the Bible says repentance is a gift. So they say to me, repent. I say, well, I'd like to repent, but I can't. No, I want you to repent. Well, I'd like to, but it's a gift. What if they said to me, receive the love, receive the kindness? I can do that. I can receive the kindness. And then in receiving the kindness, that kindness begins to work in me. It begins to transform me. And as I get transformed, all of a sudden I realize, I've repented. It's an entirely different system of justice that God brings us in. It gets to the same result. It gets to that result of transformation where I'm walking in the transformed life. But it's an entirely different form of justice because I'm not going through this punishment that Jesus already took. Now, I say that to say when we understand the prodigal nature of God, we understand that a prodigal father doesn't have punishment. He put the punishment on his son already. And the punishment that he put on Jesus satisfied every demand that he had. Now, the older brother, he didn't understand that. Because the older brother was still stuck in a justice of retribution. And the older brother wanted the son punished. The older brother said, listen, the only way he's really going to change is if you punish him. And father is saying, no, the only way he's really going to change is if we celebrate his return. If we celebrate his return and he meets the kindness of God, it's that kindness that's going to lead him to repentance. Christianity is a love affair with the Trinity, not a moral code. Now, I understand that there's some things that we're not to do. There's some things that God forbids. But love is what prevents me from doing those things, not this moral code that I'm trying to live up to. When I love, I'll fulfill the moral code. In the book, The Cross and the Prodigal, Kenneth Bailey explains the cultural implications of the prodigal son. And he says, if a Jewish son was to squander his inheritance amongst the Gentiles, the community would perform a ceremony called the Kazaza. The Kazaza was a ceremony where they would break a large pot in front of the son, and then they would declare him cut off from the people. So they took the pot, they broke it, They would proclaim kazaza, and then everyone in the community understood that that son was cut off. Shunned, don't have anything to do with him. He's squandered his inheritance. He's banished from the community. 
So Bailey submits that the reason the father ran out to meet the son was to get to him before the community could get to him. In other words, the father ran to accept the son before the community could come and reject the son. I don't know what that says to you, but I'm thinking, what an amazing father who was demonstrating to us in a very practical story his heart toward us. His heart that says, I understand the nature of people. The nature of people is to reject you when you don't do right. But my heart is to run out and meet you before they have opportunity to reject you. Now, if truth be told, we don't need two brothers to experience the story of the prodigal son. In all of us is the propensity to be both the younger brother and the older son instead of the father. I mean, the moral of the story, be like father. The reality of the story, sometimes we're like the younger brother, sometimes we're like the older brother. Inherent in us is the propensity to either devalue what we have or judge those that do. Sometimes we're the younger brother devaluing, sometimes we're the older brother judging. So whether we relate to the prodigal son in the journey of familiarity, or we relate to what I call the proud ego son, the journey of judgment. If trapped in the walls of either... Freedom is found when we see the Father's eyes. Now, I want us to make note that verse 20 says, while the Son was still a long way off, His Father saw Him. The Holy Spirit words things quite intentionally. We all understand there's power in a look. Now, as I said, my dad left when I was three. My mom raised four kids by herself. My mom had a look. You know, I mean, think well, all our moms have a look, you know. And when that eyebrow rose, you know, it was like, okay, mom's got the look and it's time to shape up. I mean, she didn't have to say anything. She just had the look. And all us four kids, I mean, we were pretty strong kids, but all of us knew that when you got the look, it was time to shape up. Here we have the father's look. The power to become all God intends comes from looking into him as he's looking into us. In other words, he reads us, but we read him. If we keep looking at disappointment, we'll be disappointed and soon depressed. But things change when we look away from disappointment and fix our eyes on the Father. Everything changes when we make the conscious choice to see life through the eyes of Father rather than through the eyes of self. It's perspective. It's going up and being able to view what's taking place through his eyes rather than through our own. Now, I'm telling you, when we do that, there's healing, there's change, there's growth, there's everything God intended it to be. The promise is all things work together for good. Amen? But have you ever experienced it not working together for good? Understand what I'm saying. I don't want to contradict the Bible, but I've just had a few experiences in my life that I'm saying, Lord, sure like to know where the good is because I don't see it. Now, we certainly understand it's those that are called according to the purpose of God and, and all that. So there is some conditions in this. But what I'm saying is the quicker we can get God's perspective the quicker we can be about the good rather than staying stuck in the limitation of our own seeing. It's at those moments we've got to get above and be able to see over. You know what the real etymology of an overseer was? Or ask it another way, what qualifies an overseer to be an overseer? Is an overseer can see over. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not real deep. It's just that most people in the community can't see over. Most people in the community get stuck. But there's someone who generally rises in the community that has the ability to see over, doesn't get stuck in the limitation of this view, sees over the circumstance into the eternal purpose of God, and then is able to give Father's perspective. And as a result of Father's perspective, everyone says, Wow, this person's amazing. Let's make him an overseer. All of us are meant to be overseers. I mean, not in a bishop sense or not in an apostolic sense, but certainly in the sense of overcoming, certainly in the sense of being able to see Father's perspective of the situation and not get stuck in the carnal view of the situation or the circumstance that we find ourselves in. So everything changes when we make that conscious choice to see life through Father's eyes. So when we see through the eyes of Father, we don't see failure as final. We see failure as an opportunity to rise. Now think about it. God is incredibly godlike, incredibly sovereign, sees the end from the beginning. So the Bible is written. He saw the end from the beginning. And in the midst of that, he made sure that this verse gets in saying, A righteous man falls seven times. And what does he or she do? Gets right back up again. Again, that's a loving father. That in the midst of all the things that could be said, that need to be said, he's saying, listen, I love my sons and daughters so much, I'm going to tell them ahead of time, you're going to fall seven times. And I think we understand the issue isn't seven. It's not like, you know, cat with nine lives, you only got seven, eight, you're out. Now, a righteous person falls, period. But when they do fall, they get right back up again. So when we see life from God's perspective, failure is not about something that's final. It's an opportunity to rise up. I remember years ago, the man named Tom Watson was vice president of IBM at the time. And he made a $2 million mistake, and he came into the CEO's office and gave his letter of resignation, and the CEO said, what's this? And he said, what's my resignation? I just made a $2 million mistake. And the CEO said, do you think we're going to let you go after we spent $2 million educating you? It's a great perspective. You know, that's father's perspective. Father's perspective is every time we fail, it's education. That failure, when we're overcomers, when we're seeing with God's eyes, when we're seeing that circumstance through the lavish love of God, it's the opportunity to see over. When the father saw his son far off, he didn't look to condemn the son for his sin. He looked to enable the son for his return. In other words, father knew that the son had already beat himself up. He'd already lived with pigs. He'd already done what needed to be done. He'd already come to his senses. So he didn't have to bring out the whole reality of his sin and remind him of his sin. What he needed to do was enable him for his return and enable him for his future. In the Father's eyes, we see that God is about giving us the look of enablement. When we look to him, we're enabled to be like him. So we need to see our Father's eyes because of the perspective they bring. We need to see through Father's eyes because of the change they bring. We need to see through Father's eyes because of the healing they bring. 
We need to see through Father's eyes because of the capacity they bring. That's what all this stumbling and, and everything, it's about. It's about God giving us the ability to change, to see, for our capacity to be increased. So here's the take-home of what I want us to understand. We need our Father's eyes because those who see through the Father's eyes are enabled to love unconditionally, to trust undoubtedly, to serve untiredly, and to proceed unhesitantly. To be in a situation as life unfolds, that we can be the hands of God extended, to be able to love unconditionally and see through God's eyes. Just recently, I went through a very difficult situation, and for about a month and a half, I literally wondered if I was going to live. I'm not suicidal. I'm not suggesting I was going to take my life. I just meant, I'm not sure I've got enough to live. I told my wife, I understand transitional breathing now. You know, I was in enough of the deliveries and, you know, and the coaches saying, okay, it's time to go into transition, all that. What's the big deal about breathing? I understand the big deal about breathing right now because it relieved pain. And I was waiting to meet my son, and I was in a coffee shop, and I sat in the corner of this coffee shop, and I remember thinking, I'm going to die, and there's not a person that knows it. I pulled up to the coffee shop in my Mercedes Benz, and I was very nicely dressed. I looked like I had everything together. Problem was, I thought I was going to die. And I sat in that corner and I thought, I just wish somebody would come up to me and say, Norm, it's going to be okay. I mean, I was desperate enough, I would have listened to a Jehovah's Witness. If a Mormon came up, I would have received it from a Mormon. You know what I'm saying? At that point in time, I did not care. I just needed to hear. And I say that to say, I wonder how many lives we pass on a daily basis that are the same way. Look like they have it all together. Look like they don't have a care in the world. Look like they got the world by the tail. And we may even see them and think, you know, I'd love to come up to them, but, you know, I'm sure they don't want to hear me. No, they're willing to hear anybody. They just need to hear the voice of unconditional love. They need to hear that voice reminding them that they can trust. They need to hear somebody encouraging them to proceed. You will get through this. There will be tomorrow. You do have a future. You do have a hope. There's still God's promise to prosper you. In other words, to just be the hands of a lavish, loving Father extended. So I'm here tonight just to remind you of his love, to remind you that the greatest gift we will ever receive in life is the gift of an Abba encounter. And for whatever reason, God has ordained to send me tonight just to remind you of his love, to remind you of how lavish he is, to remind you that there is a tomorrow, to remind you if you're struggling that you will get through, you are an overcomer, you can see through his eyes, you do have a future and a hope, he is here to love you, he is here to prosper, he's here to do all those things that he promised he would do from the beginning. He's here just because he loves you. You don't have to go through surgery to figure it out, you don't have to go through some life-changing experience or life-altering experience. You can know it right where you are. His extravagant, prodigal Father's love. Father, I thank you for who these are tonight. And Lord, I'm asking that in this moment that you would meet each one of them right where they are. 
Abba, manifest your love here tonight. But particularly that one that's wondering, Lord, do you really care? Are you really aware? Have you heard my cry? Lord, I pray, just affirm that. Come and reveal the depth of your love, even as you ran out to meet the prodigal. Run out tonight to meet these here. Let that sense of celebration be theirs. May that personal reality of the celebration be ours here tonight as we sense you celebrating over us. Lord, anyone here tonight that's fallen and has convinced themselves that they shouldn't get up, they can't get up. Remind them of their need to get up. Remind them of their need to not stay stuck in that place, but to rise up because you've made them righteous. So we loose the grace right now to rise up and apprehend the destiny that you've called, to rise up and apprehend your love. Thank you for being the loving God that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Dr. Hansen. I hope you've enjoyed today's warning radio program with Reverend Norm Willis. My guest today, who is speaking to the staff of World Ministries International and their family, is Reverend Linda Liberty from Canada. The message, The War Horse. Let's begin. Well, I really appreciated the video presentation of Israel. I'm a friend of Israel. God sovereignly told me in 2006 to go to Israel. Had no desire, never wanted to. I couldn't see the point in going, but he had a different agenda, and it was to awaken me to his heart. And when I got to Israel, I found that Israel was the epicenter of the whole earth. And when you go there, there is an open heaven, an open heaven of heavenly flow and heavenly revelation that's available to you if you just reach up in the atmosphere and pull it down. And so I spent time in the 24-7 house of prayer. I also went to King of Kings. I made good friends with ICEJ. I worked strategically with Friends of Israel, and I worked strategically with Operation Mobilization. I know the Rawlings from Canada, and I know Merv and Merla from Canada, and whenever they're in Canada, I'm partnering with them. And we do Shabbat, and we celebrate the feasts. So the last time I saw Merv and Merla, they were in their beautiful... He was dressed like a high priest in Israeli garb, and she was in the most magnificent regal gown and headdress. And we did Feast of Tabernacles, and you had to see the glory of what they wore. He even had the breastplate of the 12 stones of Israel on his chest. I was in Abbotsford at the time. I want to tell you, big inroads in my heart. And my heart for Israel keeps getting larger and larger and larger. So praise the Lord. I love this house because this house is a friend of Israel. Well, yesterday we had some conversation about Canada. And I don't really want to talk about Canada today. I really don't because you can listen to the episode or whatever. But God is really doing something newly with me for Canada. And I want to tell you that I, being apostolic, I get to travel and move in a lot of directions. I get to see where the body of Christ is weak and where it is built on faulty foundations, wrong doctrines, but I also get to see where the body of Christ is really shifting with God on God's agenda, where their hearts are open, where there's heavenly gifts operating and flowing, and they are really advancing the kingdom. 
So right now, I have to decide, you know, <laughs> where does God want me to be? And frankly, I don't want to waste my time on churches that don't want to change. Do you know what I mean? If the leadership is blocking it, I'm just going to walk away from it. But I do have a message for them, and I am cultivating that message in my heart, and I'm going to write a book. And it's going to be called Cry Canada. And why Canada needs a corporate repentance cry. But I also know that God is about to do something that is major. And it's going to happen in America as well as Canada. I had a wonderful time yesterday when I came back from Papa's house. <laughs> there was a horse in the field. Your horse probably, right? Yeah. And you know, when I got up this morning, there he was again. I could hear him in the field. And so I said, Lord, what's the right message for today? And so I was thinking about horse, and I would like to talk about the horse right now. And strategically, a war horse. Because that's what the Lord tells me we are changing into. There is a move of God's Spirit in the supernatural about to take place. It already is taking place in other regions. But it is coming here to sweep away the darkness. It is coming here to trample on scorpions and serpents in the Pacific Northwest. So God's spirit can move as he desires it to move. And so I have been saying, God, what am I? And he says, well, you're kind of like the workhorse. <laughs> the workhorse. And the one, you know, who, who just gets tired and weary, maybe you feel like a workhorse, tired and weary of doing the same old, the same old way and seeing little results. But God says, I'm going to shift things. I'm going to do a supernatural thing because my spirit is keeping on coming ever since it did on the day of Pentecost. And I want to tell you that God's breath on you is going to change up everything. There is an unction of God to be released in the earth greater than we have ever seen. And so I want to deposit courage to you today. I just want to shift your thinking just a little bit. So let's talk about the horse. Can I do this? Can I go ahead? <laughs> All right. Well, a war horse leads the charge. Amen. There's a battle front and there's a battle to win. But this war horse is trained prepared and ready to go. And he snorts. He snorts. He paws the ground. He paws the ground and snorts in the face of an enemy. And see, we need that in our spirit in today's world. We have atheism and pantheism and all kinds of faulty beliefs and ideologies that are everywhere present in the mindsets of people. But it's going to take a new strength, a new fire, and new fortitude in us to strategically confront those Goliaths in the land. Amen? Amen? All right. So they take the charge, they lead the charge, but they also are sent forward with messages, like the runners that go forward, the footmen that run to bring a message to the city. But there's riders on horses that run through the ranks, over fields and lands, with a message to bring. And so these horses are also trained to run. Okay, and they also are used in the supply lines. 
So we need war horses today. And so the strength of the horse must never outweigh the strength of the rider. Because they're powerful, they're muscular, they have drive, but they must come under the control and submission of the rider. They have to completely lose. They have to completely surrender. And so I want you to think of your own spiritual walk and a time when you may have been a wild horse. Okay? Wild horses are out there. No direction, whatever. There's a leader in the herd, but they're just out there. And they're all kinds of colors, all kinds of <laughs> shapes. And so when we come to faith in Christ, we're kind of like this wild horse. And I understand from history that it took about a hundred cavalry men to search and find a few horses. So they look over the herd in the pastures or the hills and they see and they identify that one, that one, that one would make a good war horse. But it took a hundred men to go into the fields, surround them to apprehend the very few. And so a wild horse lives in fear. He is startled and he runs right away. Run. How many of you tried to outrun the Holy Spirit? <laughs> a lot of us, right? Okay, well, these cavalrymen would eventually corral the horses. What is the horse's reaction? He goes into panic. He bucks. He kicks. He snorts. He wrestles. How many of you found yourself like that? <laughs> I know I have. Okay, but eventually they are corralled into a fence line. Okay, they're channeled in to uh, corral and then there are boundaries. Hey, maybe you feel like you've got some boundaries around you. You know, some people say, oh, God won't let me do this, and won't let me do that, and won't let me do this, and won't let me do that. And, and you find when you start out in your Christian walk that you don't understand the wisdom of God. And so the writer actually has a master plan. And so now the process begins. And so when the wild horses come, one of the first things that you see is that they're malnourished. And so comes our feeding, right? And Isaiah 1, 19 says, If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. So the master's already got a plan. He's already got a design. And he sees the potential, but now he needs to train it. And so I ask you, what have we been feeding on? If we're feeding on the word of God, we're going to strengthen ourselves. Amen. But the corral is likened to the church. And so there's a difference between breaking a horse and training our spirit. So we need to get a new thinking. God is training us, not breaking us. Okay, so the taming of the horse, when he's corralled, this horse is not being punished. He is tamed to make right choices. And is similar to the way that God changes us. Wrong responses of the horse bring pressure. If a trainer uses a whip, then the horse only learns fear. So the trainer, a wise trainer, doesn't use the whip at all. 
He uses a rope. Okay, it's different. You know in the word, you know, in the Bible, it talks about being stiff-necked, that the Israelites were stiff-necked. Well, the neck is very important. If you can control the neck, you can control the rest of the body. So the wise trainer throws a rope around the neck. Immediately the horse does. He struggles, he strains, he tries to get out from this restraint. And he learns that pressure brings affliction. But if he would just lower his neck, even just a little bit, he can subdue or lessen the pressure. So that's the first thing that a rider does. The second thing the rider does is he brings a cushion, a soft blanket, saddle blanket, and he lets the horse smell it. And then he tries to put it on him. He bucks, he squirms, he goes all through the actions all over again. But eventually he realizes that this cushion doesn't do him any harm at all. Then he takes the bucket, and he brings him a bucket, and he rattles it, and he makes noise. And the cavalrymen will all surround him, bang, 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 till he gets accustomed to the noise and realizes the noises around him don't hurt him at all. They're there, but he's here. And so this training process goes on. And so we are in a battle, and John 17, Jesus fought the battle and won. He fought a battle and won for our salvation. And we have to come to the place where we say, not my will be done, Lord, but your will be done. We can fight and wrestle and fight and wrestle and fight and wrestle with God all we want, but he wants to subdue that strong-willed spirit. Not break us, but subdue it, because he still has a master plan. And so war horses are singled out. The trainer uses the rope. And he gets that rope around the head, and he brings that horse into submission. And the horse digs in, backs up, his eyes flare, his nostrils flare. And so we can have emotional reactions when God is dealing with us. And maybe you sense that maybe God is dealing with you in some ways even right now. But eventually, a strong, powerful horse can actually, you know, take that rope and run. So what the trainer does, he wraps it five or six times around an immovable post. And no matter how much he fights, the pole wins out. Hallelujah. <laughs> Aren't you glad about that? And so eventually the horse will calm down. And eventually it goes through other processes. Hallelujah. And the trainer is so kind. He even throws sawdust on the ground to create a soft landing for the horse if he chooses to fall. Isn't our God good? He anticipates everything. So, let's move on. A fire horse. A fire horse is trained to stand in a stall until an emergency. Think about that. Some of you in this room might feel like a fire horse today. Nothing's happening, but you know you're an intercessor. You know you're called to the place of prayer. You know you're called in a time when that bugle sounds and it's time to go into the battle. But a fire horse is a little different. He just waits and waits and waits. But I want to tell you, 
Within 15 seconds, a rider can take the fire horse and the fire horse goes into action in 15 seconds. And the fire horse runs toward the fire. Some hides of horses are completely burned up as they stand next to a burning house. Fire horses know their duty and are absolutely committed to it. They're only used in emergency. When an attack comes, an intercessor goes to work. When they see relationships breaking apart, they pray, go to work, intercede. You don't want a trick pony or a fire horse when it's time to go to war. <laughs> Which brings us back to the war horse again. But all of these horses must be sensitive to cues, sensitive to cues of their trainer. And so there is going to be a new sensitivity in the Holy Spirit coming. Some of you are already experiencing it, but the measure of it is going to increase. And with it, you'll know how to move with God quickly in less than 15 seconds. Hallelujah. A horse never retires. It never retires. It may graduate from its training, but it never retires. You don't put an old horse out to graze. <laughs> you know, a war horse. It usually stays to the end. A young horse must be trained. A young horse must learn how to respond. It must be sensitive to its master's instructions. And so we can work with the Holy Spirit locally, or we could have a big global view, which some of us in this room have. Globally, God is preparing his people right now. God is calling war horses in Korea. God is calling war horses in every nation. Wherever the bride is, he's looking for war horses right now. And there is a move of God coming because the sounds of alarm are happening. Perfect storms are coming. Emergencies are coming. But he's gathering in the war horses right now. And they're being trained for a new shift and a new battle coming. I work with Watchmen for the Nations, one of my multiple ministry alignments and associates. And I want to tell you what they're teaching me and what I'm learning with them. I know I'm a war horse. I know it. And I want to go <laughs> snort and paw the ground too over Canada and this region as we can. God is calling you. There are multiple wars going on right now. Multiple wars all over the globe. And we have to know where we fit in the scheme of things, whether small or great. So I ask you, how are we responding to the Holy Spirit right now? Are we freshly captured? Are we corralled in by boundaries? Are we still fighting and resisting? Are we being led into training now? Are we following verbal commands? Are we receiving a little pressure? Do we have any fear? The war horse laughs in the face of battle. When he's good to go, when he's ready to go, he, you know, it says, Lord laughs in the heavens over his enemies. But a war horse will not turn away in the face of a battle. And God is looking right now today to brand and mark some war horses. And I'll just end there. But I felt that in January of this year, 
I have been closeting myself in with the Lord in the secret place, and He's been downloading so much new revelation to me. It outweighs the last 40 years of my life and my walk. I want to tell you there is something coming, and God is looking for the ones who will say yes to Him. And it may look like we're losing ground. And it may look like a lot of things to a lot of people. But I want to tell you, God has a strategic plan and a strike force coming. A strike force is coming. The SWAT teams of God are coming and the war horses are coming. And they're coming nevertheless. And they're going to contend. They're going to contend in this battle. And I believe the Goliaths are there in the land. No question. And God's people have been kind of like the army of Saul, cowering in the valley. But it takes a David, and here is a David among us, a General Patton, as it were, <laughs> who's looking in the face of the enemy and says, Who are you to mock my God? An unusual strategy. Unusual strategies are being released right now. Even as it was in Hezekiah's time when three armies came against him. And David's little tiny slingshot. Come on. But I want to tell you, God has his implements of war. He has strategies of war that this world has not seen yet. And they are the hidden ones. But if you will go into the war room of heaven and talk to God you will come out with strategy and battle plans you never knew. And he's inviting you today. He's inviting you to come in and access that. And it's available by the Spirit, by faith. And he's showing me so much. He's showing me so much, but he can do the same for you. And so, Father, I just want to pray over this house right now. Father, I thank you for this family of God and the mission and commission that has been faithfully served. But I want to bring courage to David. <laughs> I want to bring courage that the troops, the troops, even Saul's troops, got behind David. And there are troops coming to stand behind you and say, we want to fight with you for our nation. We want to fight with you for our nation. And so, I stand up, Pastor. I just have to lay hands on you first, because you're the head here. Come close. I just, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he should be laying hands on me. But, but I just know there is a new, there is a shift coming, a shift coming to even your mindset, the Lord says, to believe that a nation will rally behind your ministry. Thank there you, is Jesus. coming warriors. There are coming intercessors. There are coming. The work shall be multiplied. I'm calling forth the wild horses. I'm calling them, corralling them, preparing them, training them. Thank you. Lord. Who will learn to submit to the rider and will at a little tiny pressure of the knees will charge forward. Yes, Hallelujah. Yes, yes, and the Lord says yes. a new era for the ministry is coming. A new era Thank is you, coming. Thank Hallelujah. You, Thank you, Jesus. Take it away and, and just be Thank laying you, hands Jesus. on. So I am just Thank wanting to lay hands on whosoever will. 
if you feel you just need a power boost right. of the Holy Spirit, then right. I'm willing to do that. Thank you, but you can just apprehend heaven right now. You yes. don't need me to touch you. Yes. You don't need me to lay hands on you. You know, just reach up and say, God, I'm a candidate. Let's just cry out to him. Father, I say release the spirit of the war horse in this room right now. Father, gather in the mighty ones that you have marked, that you have called. Father, train them up for a new level of warfare to be released. New level. And Father, I say to them, take them into heavenly realms of strategy that bypasses their mind and then releases spiritual power. Holy Ghost, I ask you to come and blast them with new breath, new breath, new empowerment, new glory, new joy. Break the shackles of mindset. Break the shackles of restraint in Jesus' name. Let the fire of God, oh God, let even your fire burn in their bones. Woo, Jesus, come. Come. Fire of God. Fire of God. Lord, let them be quickened in the inner man. Let them hear when your finger snaps and says, kick into battle. Get into the emergency. Kick into battle. Get into the emergency. Ho! I break every restraint right now in Jesus' name. I break every faulty mindset in Jesus' name. Ho! Release your glory, Jesus. Woo! Release your glory. Now I just say quiet your souls for a minute and just receive. Just receive the gentleness of the Lord. He's going deep. He's going right into the Spirit. It bypasses your mind. Whew. Lord, I say new breath. <laughs> new breath. Lord, we command every affliction to leave. Every affliction. And the health of God. The health of God to come. Thank you, Lord. Where we've been malnourished, Father, we, we feed on heavenly things hereafter. We feed on the truth of God, that you are the Lord of the battle. Who, Father, we call forth the heavenly host, Michael and his archangels, and his angels assigned for battle to be assigned to us, to help us in our assignments, Lord. Hallelujah. Ooh. We just receive this spiritual strength by faith that he's doing it. In Jesus' name. Reverend Dr. Jonathan Hansen has written a book titled The Science of Judgment. God is predictable. There is a scientific pattern for the rise and fall of nations throughout history. We need to understand the laws or the rules of design regarding prophecy and judgment. When it comes to the laws of judgment and prophecy, denominational or personal belief systems have nothing to do with the reality or the certainty of the rule of judgment. Dr. Hansen's objective is to warn leaders of nations of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the plagues or judgments that are coming upon these peoples and nations that reject Jesus Christ as Savior according to the scriptures. Dr. Ronald E. Cottle, 
founder and president of Christian Life School of Theology, states that this book is a must-read for Christians and other leaders in the United States and in other nations. It is clear, powerful, and well-reasoned. We all owe a debt of gratitude to Dr. Jonathan Hansen for the years that have gone into the research and writing of the science of judgment. With turmoil ever increasing throughout the nations, as Bible prophecy is coming to life right before our very eyes, one must read the science of judgment to have a clear understanding of these events and the reasons why. Call 360-629-5248, 360-629-5248, that is 360-629-5248, and request your copy of The Science of Judgment for a donation of $35 or more, plus shipping and handling. Thank you, and shalom. Visit www.worldministries.org. That is www.worldministries.org. Click in the top right-hand corner the button labeled Eagle Saving Nations. Subscribe today. The vision and mission is to wake up Christians of the seriousness of the hour and hold revival meetings across the world. To fill stadiums, conferences, and churches focused on the training, strategy, exhortation, worship, preaching, allowing the glory of God to manifest with people being baptized in the Holy Ghost and others constantly overflowing with the Holy Spirit. We want them to leave these meetings encouraged, refreshed, and strengthened with power and authority to accomplish confronting the evil forces that are trying to enslave God's people and their nation. We want to be true ambassadors of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help Dr. Hansen bring another great awakening to America focused on the Holy Spirit. Thank you and shalom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Warning Radio with Dr. Jonathan Hansen, founder and president of World Ministries International. Warning Radio is a listener-supported program. We need your donations in order to continue airing these Christ-centered prophetic programs. Send your checks or money orders to World Ministries International, Post Office Box 277, Stanwood, Washington, 98292. To donate securely by phone, call 360-629-5248. Visit our website to find other ways of giving and a wealth of information about World Ministries International and host Dr. Jonathan Hansen. The website is worldministries.org. There, you'll also have access to hundreds of previously aired radio programs, made-for-television videos, thousands of articles, Dr. Hansen's books, and travel itinerary. Again, the website is worldministries.org. The phone number is 360-629-5248. Remember, the Lord is not slow about the promise of His return, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for everyone to come to the repentance that leads to eternal life.